0: great to have with us Wolfgang Simpson today. Wolfgang has been very formative, although he might not know us uh, personally in his writings and his influence as we began to step out of traditional church methods and jumped into the idea of mission and what God was doing uh, in this new reformation. And I am so privileged that Wolfgang would be joining us today to bring a word of encouragement. Wolfgang is uh, a major Reformation voice. He he has called the church back to its roots and back to where Jesus was uh, wanting to start with His kingdom, His establishment of His rule and domain on the earth, and and how we've locked up Christianity in institutions and churches. And his book particularly that we have encountered, Houses That Changed the World, started to unlock things. I know working in the church world at the time, it was controversial. And there were a lot of people uh, running around um, uh, looking at this. So um, this, this prophetic voice that God raised up out of Germany is a vision caster, a catalyst, and a man of great vision who's always looking beyond the next horizon and uh, really trying to... Um, Trying to see where is God working and what is God doing. So, thanks for joining us, Wolfgang. It's really, really a privilege to have you with us today.
1: Hi, David and everybody.
0: Hi right there. Yeah, well, Wolfgang. Let's just go back to the uh, you who you are as a person, and tell us um, how how you grew up and what was church like where you grew up, um, and and how you came to how you came to know Jesus.
1: Okay, okay. Uh, what you described about me before, all these heavy titles and reformers and so doesn't sound like me. I'm like a guy who likes to walk the dog, uh, work in the garden, and uh, be together with my wife, three boys, and be an outdoor kind of person. But um, uh, So I don't divide, in a way, um, myself into a ministry person and a private person. It's kind of all mixed up in a hopefully uh, crazy balance. Um, the way I grew up, I think, of course, is informing lots of lots of who I am. Uh, somebody once said, much of our theology really is biography, who you are, and you preach essentially yourself until you realize, oh, my God, I preach myself. I shouldn't do that. I should preach something else. And then comes the question of, You die to self, because without dying to self, you can't preach uh, anything but yourself. So about myself, I had a very funny upbringing. I grew up extremely religious uh, on a Lutheran organ bench. My mother was a Lutheran organ uh, player and a religious teacher, so I grew up Lutheranism, front, back, and everywhere. But it never touched me. I I saw a dead churchianity uh, that I didn't know how to put my fingers on it. When I grew older, about 14, 15 And when people wake up, you know, my biggest, the biggest scream that yelled at me from the world was the injustice, the social injustice, rich and poor. And I decided to look around for solutions. Who is having anything to say that actually changes anything? And I found the communists. I found um, Marxism, Leninism, and I ended up... um, in in groups that that addressed this issue uh, in in ways they could. And I thought, I ran into um, the communists in Germany, and I discovered they have home groups on Tuesday where they come together and talk about Trotskism and um, Leninism and dialectic materialism with a couple of vodkas uh, in in Stuttgart, Germany, where I went because um, early on, Uh, As as a young person, I realized that a lot of the structures that I find myself in, church, I mean Lutheran church, um, uh, schools, systems, I was in a boarding school, a religious boarding school, because my mom desperately wanted me to become a Lutheran theologian, to rescue the church from itself, something like that. And uh, hmm. I saw through so much of this scam that I felt this was so hypocritical that people are playing church choreographed little meetings and liturgies and rituals on Sunday. And then they dive into an entirely different world from Monday to Saturday. And then they go back to church and sing their sad songs and call it church and come to us and join us. And I'm like, no, uh, wh- what does this mean to anybody? So... Um, Long story short, I, um, I ended up engaging with a lot of the systems that I feel were, were breeding injustice, social injustice initially, where the rich became richer, the poor became poorer, and the hopelessness that emerged, and that made me a sort of a rebel, I think, um, but a happy rebel, I was a jazz-loving a rebel, liked to drink a, a German wheat beer, Weizen beer, um, with folks, um, lots of friends, I was an outdoor person, swimming, skiing, this kind of stuff enjoying life at the fullest but then I realized that a lot of relationships around me whatever I saw uh, began to break down um, people just unable to deliver on their little dreams or building the little American dream in Germany or somewhere uh, because of just relationship issues, uh, people couldn't get along with each other um, and, and split and divorced and hated each other and whatever and I realized something is terribly wrong with this world. You know, to quote a, a, a film that uh, was probably before the age of many of us, the film Matrix, I felt like there's a splinter in my brain that drives me slowly mad. Something is wrong with this world, but what is it? What is it? And i um, Some kicker happened to me. Something happened to me when I worked as a social worker in Stuttgart, Germany, for the government, actually, to take care of homeless people. So I ran, I ran actually a homeless shelter. And uh, it was, we were told to give each homeless person one blanket, not more, not two, not a mattress, so they can sleep on an ice-cold floor in the winter. Some of them came in frozen with, you know, full of, full of piss, shit, alcohol, frozen, and you had to shower them first, I mean, that kind of stuff, and I was Mm -hmm. the kind of person who said, nah, man, they need a mattress, our sellers are full of mattresses, and give them two blankets, so I started to just be a little bit nicer than what the government told me to do, and (laughs) I think it was a month later, where the, the mayor of the city came to us and said, who is it who gives out more blankets than supposed to do and uh, gives out more mattresses to the homeless people because we are flooded. Our city is flooded with homeless people from all over the country. People are coming and say there's a good guy in Stuttgart and he gives out mattresses. And I was the culprit. So I was fired on the spot because I was too nice with government uh, things for the homeless people. And I thought, that's interesting. While I was working there... I, I met a guy who, who every Tuesday, every second Tuesday, actually, I uh, wanted to commit suicide. Why? He was a dropout academic. Uh, his marriage went, went bust. And every Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock came his German nice father in his white Mercedes with a white toilet roll in, in the back of his car, and a, which was a status symbol, a toilet roll, uh, and a, a umbrella. So he came like the, 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 the epitome of... Um, of properness and togetherness, and basically blasted his son, you're a black sheep, you're a drunkard, you're this, you're that, and after half an hour he left in his little white Mercedes and left his son behind to actually kill himself. My job was to prevent it, so I, whatever... Um, coffee table tennis took him out for a walk gave him a secret beer whatever tried to save his life and I went on for like four months or so until I had to go uh, for some holidays because I had overtime when I came back from my holidays after what was it five six weeks or so I read um, an announcement in the newspaper that a guy had poured petrol on on himself and and burnt himself and killed himself and that was the guy And, and, and the newspaper statement says nobody knows why And it really hit me and says, Wolf, with all your enthusiasm and your Marxistic insights and your analytical skills as a young, enthusiastic person working inside the social system, can't even prevent one guy from killing himself. You know, gone five weeks and boom, another dead guy. So that doesn't work. And so what do we need? What do we need? Do we need God? As some people say, where is God? Look at the church. God can't exist. Because mm-hmm. these, these, these church people are dead. They're singing 17 songs, listen to a guy making three points. They're giving them five Deutschmarks as a sacrificial offering. And I'm like, that is nothing. That is, they should look at the communists, you know, how much more sacrificial they live. Forget the vodka. God. But um, that, at that time, I had a question, a new question in my mind Is there really a way to connect with God over and beyond the kind of churchianity, the kind of superficiality that I saw all over around me? in Germany at the time. And I remember one night I came home, midnight, I drove in my car alone to my um, studio, which I had in Stuttgart, and I had to stop at a red light in Stuttgart, Friedrichstraße, near the railway station in Stuttgart. Five lanes, and streets are full with revving cars with young guys who try to show off their cars and whatever else they have to show off to their girlfriends. And so it was um, a midnight traffic. And the red light was red, and I was waiting, and suddenly a guy knocks at my window in the middle of the street. And I look up, guy, 40 yearish, black coat, black hat, kind of strange. And uh, he he said, can I ask you a question? I lowered my jazz so I could actually hear him, because I thought he's going to ask me where the railway station is, which is like uh, there, over there. Um, and the guy pulled out his finger, pointed at me, straight in my face, and he said to me, do you know Jesus personally? I got almost electrocuted with this language, like an arrow went through me, because I thought, how does the guy know my secret question? And I stumbled something, uh, and was very happy that the red light turned green, and all the cars started rushing, and I thought, how will the guy survive now the onslaught of this German midnight traffic being in the middle of a five-lane road in the middle of the city? Because everybody wanted to get on as fast as possible. And as I drove on, and watched him in the rear mirror. I was like a taxi driver at the time in my, in my spare time, so I just did that. So you have eyes, a taxi driver, they have eyes backwards as well. They, they see the traffic in a different way. And I saw him literally vanish into thin air. He, he, he went like a puff. I thought, I like, just can't be. I, I stopped my car, almost causing the accident, going from the middle lane somewhere, and uh, looked whether he has been run over or whatnot, and he has been gone, man. He has been gone i never seen an angel before. I didn't even believe in, it, in any of this stuff. Anyhow, something shook me deeply and said, that is not normal, Wolfgang. So I went to a little studio apartment and I said, I went to my knees actually because I thought that's a proper thing. I said to God, God, that was strange. That was, that was like strange, man. But you hit me at a, at a soft spot because there must be a solution other then I find in these institutions, either in communism, which kind of waned in my excitement at the time because I saw the reality of the German Democratic Republic. I often went there. We had, um, we had relatives there and we smuggled stuff in there that they, they didn't have. So I saw the, the the real existing socialism, as we used to call it. Anyhow, I prayed a prayer and said, uh, I know I messed up, God, from your perspective. I know the thing of sin, at least in theory. I know I've lived without you, and I want to stretch out my hand of friendship to you. I don't even know how to do this. And then I went to bed. Peacefully, nothing happened, no drama. I woke up next morning totally hungry, hungry like crazy. And I, I thought, what are you hungry for? You know, eat something. No, I wasn't eating. I was hungry for something I didn't know I was hungry for. So I started reading the Bible. My mother had given me one of those Bibles that sits on the shelf. Um, I I started reading, and I simply didn't stop. I read like seven days, 24 hours. Uh, I mean, I slept in sometimes, honestly, but I read through the whole Bible in probably a week. I just read voraciously. And then I discovered Acts. Praxis, you know, I, I, I discovered the book of Acts, and I thought, my goodness, I was always in the wrong church. Uh, these guys who eat together, share together, you know, I was, I know uh, 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 life the community from the communist small groups, which they used to have. They had something like house churches, believe it or not. And I was in it. So I discovered that. I read it, and I thought, where is it? I ripped out a page from the yellow pages of our churches in Stuttgart, and I decided, I will find it, man. I'm going to find these guys who have been hiding from me all my life. All I know is Lutheran church services, and maybe uh, whatever other churches exist out there. So I went every Sunday to three, four, five churches to check them out, and to look for the guys, to look for the normal guys, who share whatever they have. You know, when you read Acts... You, you run into this thing that they shared all their possessions. There was no one amongst them who was, who was needy. And you think like, that's better than communism and capitalism together. You know, I called it communism. Mm. They had everything in common. So I thought, where are these guys? I went all over the place. Boy, to, to cut this story short, I, f- I never found them. <laughs> I didn't find them. I went to the Pentecostal churches. I didn't know what that was. And a guy got up, a couple of old people in the f- first rows. And I said, of course, in the last row, guy got up and came to me sitting there coming too close to me and said with a bad breath, brother, do you speak in tongues? And I thought, that's kind of a funny, funny question. What does he mean? And I said, well, i um, Spanish, English, Chinese, Vietnamese, but I don't speak it, I eat it. I found it funny. The guy didn't find it funny. He got up, uh, got up and spoke to the other old ladies in front and they all turned their heads around, what kind of strange man I am. So, that was my experience with church. No social competence, no way of talking to anybody normal I even went to a, a meeting in, in, in Stuttgart today we would call it an evangelical evangelistic student outreach they all had a button that said I found it a big red button on their chest I found it I found it so I thought I'll go in there and, and check out whether, whether these are the people I'm looking for but I found it impossible to even break into their into this small talks. They just stood around and stared at each other's button uh, that says I found it. I found it and ate their German pretzel and ate and drank their coffee. And I thought, mm-hmm. what are you guys doing? You just sit here, talk, talk, talk. Tell me about your life. <clears throat> Anyhow, this turned into a life where I started to ask God myself, what do you want with me? And he spoke to me. Uh, uh, he began to speak to me and said, uh, you know from communism that when you find the truth, it's not for you to keep; it's for you to give on to others. So I thought, ah, that's what a missionary is, isn't it? So if I find something, you know, that's that makes you a missionary. So I basically said, all right, a missionary is probably someone who studies theology and medicine and then goes to Africa to inject people under a big tree and then distributes tracts. That was my my understanding of a missionary. You know, how, how warped is that? But maybe it wasn't warped so much. And I thought, what should I study first? Medicine or theology? And I ended up studying theology, which I never wanted, ever, because why would I do that? But God spoke to me so clearly. He said to me, go to FETA, FETA, F-E-T-A. I thought that's Greek sheep cheese. I didn't know it means free evangelical (laughs) theological academy. There's a thing like that, like a free university in Switzerland, city of Basel. Uh, which which actually believes as a uh, theological university that the Bible is the Word of God and not just contains the Word of God. So I ended up there studying, uh, and it was my goodness! It was boring. I almost died there because all these professors wanted to put their dogmas and church history, and I'm like, when does this stuff happen? When does it become exciting? And in the meantime, it kind of closes the circle. I, I thought, how can we be missionaries? I was drawn to the Muslims at the time. I thought, man, I need to do something for those guys who, who, who seem to cry from their rooftops, their, their you know, their, the, Allah Akbar. They, they cried, and it was so odd and so wrong and so pathetic. I thought, it's a, it's a, it's a little boy crying for his dad who is lost. Mm. That's how I saw the Muslims. Ah, my dad. And I thought, someone needs to help them. Um, and I thought, how can I, how can I help them? And, um, and I looked around for mission agencies that are doing something that made a dent in the Muslim world, and I actually I didn't find them, but very boring, very German, very structured uh, mission agencies, study Arabic for five years, then Orientalistics for another five years, then you become uh, whatever, you can be a help printer of a printing machine in southern Tunisia to distribute tracts and can be happy if uh, one Muslim per year will come to Christ somehow and I thought nah that's not a vision that I'd like to run with um, and I, I, I couldn't find a church I couldn't get into corky church as we know it I tried many times in Stuttgart where I tried at least 50 churches I just never found an entry not for me almost supernatural And then when I was in Basel, they told me, you must join a church, a proper theology student, join the church and and get involved in it. Yeah, I tried. I went to the Mennonites, the Pentecostal, this, that, the other. No one had space for me. They said, brother, joining a church, wanting to become a missionary, you know, meaning I'm going to be on their mission budget at some point. Brother, it's an important decision. Pray about that. Uh, Which basically meant, can you get out of here as quickly as possible? I never felt welcome. I was like the odd one out from the very get go. Finally, and this is kind of how things start in a positive way, I met two other friends of mine, Bible school graduates or something, and we had a common desire to, to, to work amongst Muslims at a time, and we, we felt the same. And we basically decided if nothing happens, you must happen yourself. So after a, a good German couple uh, of cold uh, milk uh, beer, Uh, we decided to make a prayerful agreement and said, look, we three are making a covenant before God and each other that we will start a new church from scratch on the streets with brand new converts that don't come from any other churches. And when the church is growing big enough, we send us out ourselves. So we'll become our own mission sending agency. And to be honest, that's exactly what happened. And I was essentially, we started a... movement that today we would call it a youth house church movement then I didn't even know the word house church even existed and it -hmm. it became kind of our hotbed I mean that's how far um, I don't want to tell you all my life stories but that's kind of how I came into the scene and became then a missionary in a way sent by uh, ourselves initially which is a brilliant thing to do because you really can start totally afresh and the one thing that fascinated me initially was I need to find out why in the world are all the missionaries that was in the 80s and the mission agency saying Muslims are hard to win for Christ like if you win one every year it's a lot and then 50% of those converts you know, will go back to Islam and the others will emigrate to France or England, the country of the missionary where it comes from and um, I thought that is such a pathetic situation that must change And I ended up doing my own research. I started to ask questions and I ran into this thing about dreams. How how it seems that so many Muslims that I talked to uh, are having dreams, almost the same occurring dream. They saw a white guy in the night saying, appearing to them, sometimes in their bedroom, and saying something like, I'm the way, the truth and the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me, and then that that person would go. And sometimes there was a lingering taste of orange in the room. Strange. But hundreds of people said this, and I thought, "Man, that's that's John fourteen six. That's Jesus uh, giving a heaven TV show to, to to poor Muslims sitting on their bed, unable to escape the dream. I call it heaven's TV." And I realized that there must be thousands, maybe millions, out there. And I started to think, "Man, if we were to start uh, with this kind of mission initiative that is new." And we start very different. Let's start with where God already has invaded somebody's lives, and not kind of bring uh, the Western Gospel and the Western Church that I will I kind of fell through the cracks through this, probably as as effectively as anybody can fall through the cracks. So, if we can get a start, let's start with work what God has already done. Let's look for and and, and search out uh, what God has already done. You know, like Peace Child and Bridges of God, Donald McGovern, that kind of stuff. And I realized essentially that, my God, God has already been all all over the place and invading people's spaces, their narratives, their stories, their histories, their dreams and visions and aspirations. And when the missionaries come, they usually ignore all that. And they say, like Billy Graham, John 3, 16, forget all what you know and come to my kind of churchianity and everything will be good. And it was such a colonial Western imposed kind of thing that they, most of people initially rejected it with that kind of gospel because it does not connect and i remember you know during this time in in basel switzerland i got in touch with uh, a group of sri lankans uh, they were hindus uh, they were refugees from the from the war between the the Zikalis and the and the tamils in sri lanka I came to basel in switzerland i was kind of an ombudsman for them helping them with their whatever application process for asylum and so I became friends and they taught me how to eat on, 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 with the hands and sitting there on, on the floor and I made a mess out of myself and laughed my head off and they laughed as well so I became friends through eating with them uh, quite some of them came to Christ not too many 10, 15 or so but which was already something and then I, a person stepped into my life that came through the telephone some guy called me up and says I'm Sadhu Chalopa from India and I, I've heard you do some work amongst Hindus, can I help you? I said, as long as you speak Tamil, come over. And he, and, he, and he came and he was this guy dressed like a monk in a saffron dress and I thought, oh boy, Wolf, you're getting really into trouble hanging out with Hindus in public uh, and people think like, now he's gone mad. We, we suspected it, but now we know it. Any other guy came and he had this amazing key uh, that I Initially, I, I was just not used to see another person understand this thing that God is already there, man, before you come. You don't have to bring God to the people. God has already endowed them with questions and dreams and visions and narratives and stories. Uh, they have a question that is already being created inside of them, and you are supposed to be the answer to their question. And I can tell Mm -hmm. you now, I don't know how many stories how God brought it home, but here's the nutshell of the Indian guy, and then kind of, I shut up, I guess. Uh, That guy said, invite all the Hindus that you know, and let me speak to them. Well, I did, because I did know lots of Hindus, so maybe 120 came together, and the guy basically explained and said, you know what, there are three religions Three religious blocks, all going back to Abraham. One is uh, the Judeo-Christian blog, they they speak of Abraham. Then there are the Muslims; they speak of Ibrahim. And there are the Hindus. The most holy word in Hinduism is Brahm B H R M. Do you know where that come from? The Brahmins. Well, have you ever thought that Abraham, when he when he married his second wife Keturah, Genesis twenty-five, it says they married, had kids, and they sent them off to the east. Now, in an in a Israel-centric Bible, East is, you know, India, for example, East. And they brought Abrahamic knowledge into India, uh, which, later on, all the vowels got lost, and out of Abraham, all you get was Brahm. And the, the Brahmins found themselves to be, you know, the heirs of Abraham. And you find in, in Hinduism, in their own holy scriptures, the, the, the Vedas, the most famous and biggest one is the Rig Veda, R-I-G, uh, an incredible yeah. prophecy written 700 years before Christ in Sanskrit, which is an amazing language, an artificial language with a lot of Hebrew elements in it, uh, that essentially says one day the God of uh, God will send his son, born by a virgin, he will be called Prajapati, the God of Nations. He will be born by a virgin. He will offer up his body as a sacrifice for the sins of the people so that no more animal sacrifices will be necessary. He will die in a wood, uh, a a crown of thorns on his head, his bones shall not be broken. He will resurrect after three days, and the people will eat his flesh out of many nations. Amazing! In the Hindu, quote-unquote, Bible. And he basically said to the people, are you guys good Hindus? Oh, yes, sir, sorry, yes, absolutely, we're good Hindus, no? And he would then present to them and says, do you know who Prajapati is? And they said, no, sir, we don't know. Maybe you can enlighten us. And so he told them about Jesus, and boom, it just bang, hit them, that he's the one, Jesus is the one that is being spoken to them in their own old narratives, and it was just the answer to their age-old question. And boom, like, I don't know, 80 of them came to Christ and and followed him. And um, that kind of opened up a key insight for me, Which I already tried to say to you, you know, God is there before you are. Uh, Respect respect that. Respect that. Search for it. Don't think church history starts with you. It doesn't. Hello? God is already there. So go go somewhere and find out where God has already left his traces in the dreams and narratives of stories, in the visitations that he's doing all over the place. And so I believe if you look at it from that perspective, man, you will be on a God trail. And then later on, you know, to, to bring the story up to kind of also the church planting issue, I realized that when you then later on bring Muslims, or ideally whole families of Muslims, you know, don't bring Muslim young men alone to Jesus That's a kind of classical uh, missionary mistake. Bring families. They think as families, as tribes, as clans, and win them as a clan. You know, and, and for that you need to eat with them, share with them, do the Jesus stuff. He, Jesus was... If you just look at Jesus, what he did all the time, man, the guy, statistically speaking, he all the time ate in other people's homes. He told stories nobody understood, called parables. And he did stuff, miracles, driving out demons is the most frequent one of them. Do likewise. And you never know. Heaven is the limit of what's going to happen. And then I realized that when these people come to Christ, the kind of church that will disciple them is not going to be a Lutheran, a uh, German church, you know, or a Baptist church where everybody sits in a row and sings 17 songs and listens to the preacher who tells three points, and then you, 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 you give five dollars and you call it a church experience. No, uh, it must be a God clan, a God tribe, um, where they share lives 24-7, a kingdom lifestyle, so to speak, that people need to be invited into. And I didn't discover that... Classical church systems are totally uninterested in that subject. They don't want to hear about this. They want people to come to church, pay their tithes and offerings, and fill in the membership application formula. And um, I thought house churches is a really good entrance into this whole thing, you know, where you stop bringing Muslims to the church, and you start bringing the church to the Muslims, so to speak, but not church as we know it, in this kind of typical arrangement that is essentially a Christian version of a Jewish synagogue, Where you always do the same five things you know you you go to a building number one where nobody lives and you have a religious meeting number two you sing some songs that you call worship uh, uh, you know a bloodless cheap discount worship I, I don't think it's worship at all number three you, you read a Bible verse, number four, somebody has a sermon or an explanation, and number five, blessings and farewell. That's what they did in a synagogue. And guess what? That's what people do in a classical church service, which is not a church. It's a, it's a Christian version of a Jewish uh, mess, because God never said, I want you to start synagogues. No, synagogues were invented in Babylon, man. You shouldn't drive a car invented in Babylon, let alone a structure of religious nature that was made in Babylon. Don't do it. Get out of it. And so that whole idea of then helping Muslims coming to the kingdom to develop kingdom communities, eating, sharing, that kind of Acts 2, 240, stuff, Acts 4, everybody shared, that was such a big new thing. And man, It was fought tooth and nail by the church people in the Middle East, by the missionaries. It was ridiculous almost. But God gave such a favor that we will always find different people who tried it out who went outside the camp, who started doing things, and what started as a very small little movement that people looked at it belittlingly, and these house church strange folks, you know, they will learn the lesson, has now become the largest movement. Uh, It started in Egypt, went over to Libya, to Tunisia, and so many other nations, and it's now by far the largest uh, normal uh, movement of um, church planning in, in the Muslim world, and beyond. Okay, let me stop my my little talk here and uh, give you some time to breathe, guys. <clears throat> That's
0: just uh, fantastic um, reflections as you as we start to look at um, you know the idea of mission coupled with church uh, has been our traditional model. So we walk into an environment and we we think, well, if I plant a church uncritically looking at without looking at the models that, that are there, we'll reach the lost and that's really um, has to be flipped on its head um, you know, uh, when we came back into Australia, the, the theme that was coming out of um, uh, Peter Wagner, the church growth uh, kind of concepts was church planting uh, is the best way to reach lost people and so we uncritically adopted that idea and um, <clears throat> and then, um, then uh, we we just basically reproduce the models without thinking about it. Um, you see that happening all through um, places like India, um, etc. But then there's this whole something totally new that has developed that looks really different. And it, 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 you link it back into Acts, and it, it comes alive. You link it back into how Jesus made disciples. Uh, the It starts to explode with meaning. Um, I just wonder if you would just give us a quick reflection on church planting uncritical critical adoption of church planting, as I was just saying, versus the... Um, the, the the new thing that God has been doing or teaching us, but it's the old thing, really, right? It's not the new thing, but it's uh, And what are this? Uh, I think underlying this question for you is to just jump into the space for us to help us think. What are the essentials of church? And you know, looking at Acts two forty two and and what God is doing on the planet today, just unpacking those three kind of concepts
1: there. Yeah, yeah, I get you, Dave. That's, that's, of course, a loaded thing, and I'm trying to be as brief as I can. Look, you, you mentioned India, and Mahatma Gandhi, for example, is famous for his statement, I like you're Christ, but not you're Christian. It's, uh, it's, mm. it's an undeniable fact of history that many, many more people are attracted to Jesus Christ than to the religion of Christianity. And for many Christians, it comes as a shock, as a shock to realize uh, Jesus preached the kingdom. What came was Christianity. And so, currently, vast proportions of Christians are done with cocky, you know, church, as we know it, and fleeing into a, a religion-free zone. So, let me, let me not talk about just classical church planning, but look at your question from the highest possible vantage point that I know, which is to, 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 to talk about one concept is religious, and the other one is the kingdom. I see the kingdom as God's... Um, Uh, desired and uncontested rule, his domain of his desired and uncontested rule in a way it's a meta-country, the kingdom is a country with a king and a constitution and an economy and a a leadership issue, how how things are run there and religion is a man-made structure that is very, 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 very different from from, um, the kingdom of God, so the kingdom of God is God-made And religion, including the religion of Christianity, is man-made. And if you look at it analytically, you find that the foundations of religion... are always the same. There are always four foundations and that informs the way we do church. And you can kind of check yourself, if you hear this podcast, you know, check yourself whether the kind of church planting you do is a religious version of church planting or whether it's an expression of the kingdom of God, which is vitally and vastly different, like light years apart. And let me just analyze it quite quickly. Classical religion, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu and Christian and, and other religions always have four Pillars, four foundations, so to speak. Number one, there's always a, a founder, a, a church father, a Muhammad, a Buddha, uh, some, some extraordinary human person that is the guru, the star, you know, like, like the Hillsong uh, preacher who started a, a founding, overarching superhero that gets it all started. Our man, you know, that secondly, that man develops dogmas. Dogmas are Uh, 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 aspects, statements of belief that we pick from the large uh, buffet what all you can believe and dogmas are like what we like to believe and you put together your face statement and your whatever you believe and you pick and say I I like the meat I, I like the red wine, I don't like this pudding I don't like the vegetable, I don't like the salad so it's a pick and choose thing, dogmas number three out of those dogmas come traditions where we are going to do things today because and how we have been doing them in the past. Traditions, traditions. There are traditions when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You must fall forward. Oh, no, you must fall backward. Oh, no, you must not fall at all. And that becomes your tradition. And out of that, lastly, comes rituals. Rituals, stuff that we do again and again. And the longer we do rituals, you know, the more they become divorced from life. I remember I was in Australia once, and somebody gave me a run of the, what was it called, emergent churches at the time, which were, in a way, post-modern versions of evangelical preachers at the time, where you didn 't sit on pews uh, on chairs, you sat on sofas and you, you were more relaxed and the, the sermon wasn 't called a sermon, it was a narrative and, and, and worship was uh, we had an ice cube in our hands and watched it melt and, and kind of describe our feelings to it and It was a pink version of the classical evangelical synagogue. it was the same thing. my God, I was bored when I, when I saw it because I thought it 's so religious it's just downright religious, and you are part of that stream, which has Alan Hirsch as his founder, and you're, you're in the Hillsong area, or you are wherever you are, are you essentially following religious gurus, a man-made system with man-made dogmas, with man-made traditions, with man-made rituals, hello, and the church, you know, come to church on Sunday, uh, a place where... Um, uh, uh, people have choreographed, pre-planned meetings of all sorts, including a Bible study, we're not going to have a Bible study and we're going to do this, and must be a discovery Bible story, and we need to honor David Watson's principles, yeah but it's still a person so look at the kingdom foundations, they're so very different the kingdom foundations are also four. And the kingdom foundations are very different than religion. Number one is where Jesus is actually king. Now, I'm talking mostly to Democrats, right? Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Well, doesn't matter. Both hate the monarchy, right? So, we Democrats don't know what it means to follow a king. Admit it and learn what it is from the Africans or from, you know, the terrorists or people who have a person, a heavenly person that actually is a real king, a sovereign person that isn't asking your opinion. You are supposed to submit to him and and submit on your knees before him. Because so many Christians have a God, but they don't have a king. So the kingship of Christ, number two, the foundational law of the kingdom, the constitution of the kingdom, like Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And most Christians have it, you know, teach them to underline everything I have recommended you. They don't know what it means to be constitutional. And when you're not constitutional on the constitution of the kingdom of God, when Jesus says, if you love me, John 14, 5, you will obey my laws. It's a lawful uh, uh, state of law, not a, a, a wild west where you do what you want, if you want, with whom you want. Um, So the second thing is the constitutionality. It's about legality that I'm talking, not legalism. Cut your hair, don't smoke, that stuff. No, legality means you base your life on the law that God gave you and your opinion about it is not invited. Welcome to the kingdom. That's the second thing. It's the second foundation. Thirdly, kingdom economics, the household rules of the kingdom, which is so extremely different from the Babylonian economics of buying and selling that in Christianity has just been, you know, sugar-coated with a couple of Bible verses and prayer before and after, but otherwise we just do exactly the same thing. We are a market-based religion. And so kingdom economics, whatever that now is, the household rules of God, for example, God owns the money on your bank account, and you own, it's His money on your bank account, and no, you're not free to do with God's money, whatever you like. Your opinion about that is not invited again. Welcome to the kingdom. So different from religion. And fourthly and lastly, the leadership issue. The leadership issue in the kingdom are not human leaders. It's the Holy Spirit, Romans 8. Those who are driven by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So the whole idea of leadership, and I know, in, I think in Melbourne, I ran into a guy, was it David Orton, who spoke about leadership or so? And in privately, I, I would say, you know, the whole idea of humans trying to catch a sort of a leadership position and lead them to the left, straight, up, down, in, out, you know, everything at the same time is responsible for the ridiculous flea circus we have in Christianity. It's, it's, it's this laddership, you know, you climb up the ladder, you start as an assistant, then you become pastor, then senior pastor, then dean and bishop and arch this and arch the other, pope now, it's, it's, it's fashionable to become God, you're gods. So this, I call it laddership. Or if you want, and you can quote me here, it's, it's leadership because it is the central institutionalized system how to avoid the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I remember I was once asked, was it in Melbourne, In a Forge conference, uh, they asked me, uh, you know, one of those panel things, Wolf, what do you think about leadership? And I said, in a way, what I just said to you, and everybody laughed because they thought, the guys are making hilarious joke. Guys, it's not a joke, okay? It's not 15 years later. Do you really hear me? In the kingdom of God, you are not the leader. The art is followership, not leadership. When you go through all this John Maxwell kind of leadership and hierarchies and You can talk about starfish and spider and and, and everything, but at the end of the day, you still want to lead my movement, my brand, my church, and I'm the leader, and I'm the senior this and the senior other. You're still in religion, and you need somebody to lay the hands gently on your head and your heart, which I'm doing right now in the spirit, and say, get off it, man stop being religious. Let's get this religious demon driven out of you like the demon it is. Let's get you reset, you know, a factory reset that that God actually wants. Get out of religion. Leave behind all these four false uh, foundations that you have been groomed in, and only because mommy and daddy had given it to you, that's not means it's right. Move, migrate from the disposition of religion into the disposition of the kingdom. That may take some time. So, When you do the church planting, you know, then the whole idea of what in the world is church, what is ecclesia, comes then to mind, and there's a religious definition of church, uh, like when people come together to whatever, sing, pray, and read Bible or something like this, and that's very religious, I don't like it, I even think it's not in the Bible, no it's not, Um, to the understanding that ecclesia means something so super different, Uh, Just two little definitions. The original ecclesia was the Senate of Greek democratic city-states of all those above 20 years who are eligible, who can basically decide on the level of a city how we're going to move the city forward. So the city of God is, a, you know, a, the idea that Jesus proposes, mm-hmm. because he says, you are the city on the hill. Let the people see your deeds, so they shall praise your Father in heaven. It's an acropolis, an elevated way of living that people look at it and say, oh my gosh, what these people do? Nobody can do unless God is with them. That's what it means. And also acropolis of God, the city of God means when the Romans colonized the world, they, they fought them militarily, and then they established a beachhead of, of Roman culture. They transported about 300 Roman families into the new target, uh, into Palestine, the new, the new colony, and they established a beachhead of the superiority of Roman culture. Their, their their water heating, their this and that. So they wanted to convince the people by model, by modeling the higher standards of Roman culture to win those, those barbaric pagans to the way of life of Roman things. And that thing, that beachhead, do you know what it was called? It was called Ecclesia. That's what Jesus talks about. A beachhead of the kingdom of God on earth. How it is in heaven, so it shall be on earth. Not how it is in America, so it shall be in Singapore. How it is in Germany, so it shall be in Korea. How it is in Korea now that the Korean mysteries go to Mongolia. No! How it is in heaven, so we need to, in a way, go to heaven first and find out what in the world is going on there and what of heaven can we bring down on earth and model it. Model it in your bedroom, that's where it starts. Model it in your, in your living room, is it clean, is it not clean? You know, in your jurisdiction, model it in your family, in your company, in your company, whatever. In your jurisdiction, make sure your jurisdiction becomes a kingdom colony small, medium, and large, of all sorts of size, and then invite people into that space, and it's a life space where you live, not a Wednesday evening Bible study, God forbid, because that is, again, leading people straight back into religion. So, therefore, you know, for me, on that level, if you go there, it's a helpful analysis You know, what are we doing? Are we actually planting the problem? Because if you still plant churches, the same old, same old style, you're simply planting modern versions, slightly Australian versions. And I like the culture, but you still plant a cultural expression of cocky church, as we know it, into a different culture. And, you know, you have the seed of destruction built right in there. And I say this as a person who for the last 30 years have been standing for church planting. And I also came to the realization that sometimes, maybe many times, our church planting has been actually part of the problem, not part of the solution. So what I'm saying is, reset. Go back and say, God, click the button behind my right ear, and some people is behind the left ear. Press the button that resets me, a factory reset to how God originally intended you to be under his kingship, under his law, like Paul says, I am under the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians nine twenty one, under the uh, um, economy of the kingdom of God, which is revolutionary and uh, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Practice that, live that, in your own small area SML, expand it start where you are, where you live, where you play, where you work, and then expand it. If, if God for some reason doesn't want to expand it, may I dare I say that, Maybe what you model is not worth multiplying. Don't say it's a hard ground. These people are not responsive. Maybe the problem is you. Maybe the problem is you're the cock in the bottle. You're not leading a lifestyle that God wishes to multiply. If you look at the issue of blessing in the Bible, blessing is a power of God given to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And it's essentially a response to obedience. You know, God gives us His grace and His love free of charge, without any condition. But his blessing is absolutely conditional. If you live according to my my decrees, my laws, my ways, then I will bless you, which means make you fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And if you don't, I will withhold that blessing from you because you're unblessable. You're still lovable. I still give you my grace, but blessing, sorry, mate, you haven't earned it. And that insight is an important, crucial insight. I've written a whole book about it called the Starfish Manifesto. If you Google it, it's somewhere out there and you can download it. So it's unpacking this simple thought uh, as, as a core dynamic for the expansion of the kingdom of God.